The planet is heating up. The oceans are becoming filled with plastic. Change starts now. Change starts now. We're on a countdown. To zero waste. Five, four, three, two, one. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast. Here's your host, Laura Nash. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast and radio show. We are speaking with Jocelyn Molyneux from Ontario. She lives north of Toronto near Orangeville, and she is the owner of Waste Not Farms. This is a worm farm, and she is turning the waste in Toronto into a viable product. Welcome to the show, and you are the owner, so you started Waste Not Farms, right? That's correct. When did you start it? Has this been going on for a while? Uh, we're about six years old now. Nice. And what do you sell at Waste Not Farms? We have two essentially separate business lines that are interdependent. So we use our worms to produce an amazing all-natural fertilizer product. We call it Jocelyn Soil Booster. It is worm poop. Um, the technical name is worm castings. So we sell that at retailers. We also sell it uh, online. And then the other part of the business that we operate uh, in order to feed our worms, we run a food waste collection service for offices in the greater Toronto area. So we have about 40 partner offices where we go in once or twice a week. We collect the food waste that they have been putting in our bin. So anything from uh, lunch leftovers, coffee grinds, even things like paper napkins, chopsticks, anything that was a plant or animal at one time can go into our bin. And we bring that food waste up to the farm. We use that to feed the worms, and uh, and then the cycle continues. Wow, that's amazing. And 40 businesses is really big for this. So how do you get people on board? I feel like if I came to a business in the greater Toronto area and said, hey, if you can collect your, your food, I will come and take it off your hands. I feel like people might not be into it. So how do you how do you get people excited for this? Well, I think it's important to mention that it is not a free service, that these offices do pay a, a small weekly fee for the opportunity to compost. And part of the reason that this model works, whereas perhaps, you know, 10 years ago it wouldn't have, is that there's a a much greater awareness that corporate social responsibilities are mandatory, essentially, that businesses should be doing the right thing where they can and when they can. And, And part of this is reducing waste to landfill and diverting uh, food waste to composting is one of the the best and also one of the easiest ways to do that. So we make it really easy, clean, fast, affordable. We make it really easy for our businesses to participate. And for them, there's a whole host of benefits. A big one is that their employees, uh, especially millennial employees, can feel good. They can know that they're employer is doing the right thing. Um, They get to use the compost bin on a daily basis. Um, There's other benefits as well. So the offices receive an impact report. So this outlines the amount of food waste they've kept out of the landfill, the landfill space they've saved, the carbon emissions reductions from doing that, um, the amount of uh, chemical fertilizers they've offset with our natural uh, soil product. 
And so, uh, so having quantitative data for them in some cases is a, is a big selling point. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and overall, we know that businesses, they want to be good corporate citizens, but they don't always have a lot of leeway uh, to be able to, to affect that change. Maybe they're a, a tenant in a larger building where the landlord doesn't want to do composting. So we're an easy solution where we'll go directly into their tenant office, we'll climb five flights of stairs, and therefore they can they can work towards the sustainability goals despite whatever limitations may be put on them by their building. Mm-hmm. So I think that collection would be quite a challenge, and you've obviously figured it out and are doing a great job at it. So tell us a little bit about the collection process. So why is it not messy? Why does it not smell? Yeah, so so we definitely uh, perfected the, the collection over the years. And so a big part of, of that is that we allow things paper-based or carbon-based materials into our compost bin. So these are things like paper napkins, paper towels, paper plates, chopsticks, wooden cutlery, uh, bamboo um, containers. So these items are all carbon-based, and uh, what that means is that they act as a biofilter. And so if there are some smells from, you know, some stinky cheese, for example, these other paper-based items will actually help absorb that smell. They help to keep it aerobic, so to keep the oxygen moving. So um, as long as you avoid that anaerobic state, so if you can avoid not having enough oxygen, then smells really aren't a problem. We also use a, a deodorizing powder in our bags to, to help with that. And we have a fly strip that we keep on the bin. Generally, mm, yeah. we find that because we're there once or twice a week, when we're there, we're cleaning up any mess, if there's been any spills, you know, we're keeping a very close eye on the bin. And so that way that if there is a fly, we can um, come in and take corrective action. And, and generally flies aren't, aren't an issue. You know, August, September, they're all over the place, but we're able to control them with our fly strips so we, we don't have a problem. Are you ventilating the, the plastic bin? Not actively, but by encouraging our participants to put their paper towels, put their napkins, that creates a lot of volume and it creates a lot of air pockets so that the the oxygen can flow through. Okay, that's good. And you provide the carrying bin as well? Is it like a kind of a plastic garbage bin sort of thing? Well, our service is really tailored to what the needs are of the client. Mm -hmm. Um, A big big reason why we have been successful is that we don't use a, a cookie cutter approach. It's not one size fits all. That, that's a recipe for disaster when it comes with dealing something like volatile food waste. You know, the first step for us is we go in, we meet with the, the potential client, we uh, do a site survey, we assess what the setup is, and then we make proposals based on uh, recommendations of what we think will work best, uh, mm-hmm. what we know from our experience. And so there are one or two bins that we often use that are our preferred bins, but uh, but sometimes clients want a stainless steel bin that matches a, a premium look to their office. So in that case, we'll find an appropriate uh, appropriate stainless steel bin and we'll implement that. So so it's certainly not one size fits all. Nice. Well, that's very, yeah, very smart. It's good to be adaptive. And have there been any companies that have just said absolutely no for some like strange reasons or are some companies scared to get involved? 
there's there's usually always a, a negative Nancy. We would call <laughs> call that person or a uh, Debbie someone, Downer. <laughs> exactly, a Debbie Downer. Um, someone who who is concerned. You know, it's going to smell, or it's going to be flies, or it's going to be messy. So one of the things that we do is offer a four week free trial for our uh, new clients. Oh, very smart. And so this this allows them to get over that barrier. Um, it really allows us to prove that uh, it's going to be effective, it's going to be easy and clean, and that, that their employees are really going to appreciate it and, and are going to use it. So uh, what we find, you know, certainly there are some offices where they're initially interested and then they, they choose not to go ahead. But in that case, I would say often it comes down to just not having the budget allocated at that time. Mm-hmm. And the worms, do they eat? the paper and the napkins or does that get sorted out? For sure, yeah. So worms will eat pretty much anything that was a plant or animal at one time. They do like things to be balanced. So food waste, like the type of food that we would eat often is high in nitrogen, whereas paper-based like napkins and paper plates, they're more of a carbon-based material. And a worm really likes a 50-50 mix. So one of the nice things is that uh, the food waste we collect often is already pretty close to that 50-50 mix, so we don't have to, to supplement it with much else. Yeah. Okay. That's good. So I don't know very much about worms, and I feel like you're probably a worm expert. Would that be safe to say? Um, I would think most people call me a worm expert, yes. <laughs> that's so awesome. So tell me a little bit more about worms. So are you selling worms as well? to people who want to do home composting or just using them yourself? So our worms are our workers. And so we don't actually sell our worms. We do uh, grow our worm population. We, we encourage them to reproduce. In fact, we have a worm hatchery uh, where we're specifically trying to grow our herd. But we don't actually sell our worms because we want to keep them for ourselves and we want to grow the business and, and grow our impact. We do work closely closely with Kathy Nesbitt of Kathy's Composters. She was the one that originally sold us some worms, and her business is focused on helping homeowners or, or classrooms, individuals, start up their own worm composting bin. And uh, she will sell them the worms. She'll sell them the bin. Um, she'll provide the, the hands-on instruction. She's been doing doing that for for decades. In fact, she was, she's been well established. And so when we started, we made a specific point to focus on a commercial application. So so not do as much training or education. We don't go into classrooms generally to set up worm bins, but we're more focused on applying this to to commercial and institutional clients. Does she have a website or something listeners can check out if they're interested? For sure. So her website is kathycomposters.com. Awesome. So that's cool. So if you're interested in like home composting with worms or if you're a teacher or something, you can use that as a valuable resource, right? For sure. She'd be happy to help you out. She does great presentations for classrooms. Awesome. And then if you're a business in the GTA, they can contact you through Waste Not Farms. And uh, is it Soil? What's your other website? You have two, right? Right. So because we sort of have these two different parts of the business, um, we do sort of maintain uh, two different customer bases. So wastenotfarms.com is geared towards our pickup clients, so the offices. 
And then our other website is soilbooster.ca. And this is our retail website for the Jocelyn Soil Booster Worm Manure. Mm -hmm. And this is where um, folks can go to find out more information about that product. You can order online. I do have a discount code if you want me to share that now. Sure, absolutely. Great. So for the website, uh, soilbooster.ca, you can put in the discount code zero waste podcast. Nice. All one word. Awesome. And uh, and that will get twenty uh, percent off for the uh, the soil booster bags or for our uh, tea bags. We also produce a, a tea bag for people that want to make a a plant tea um, to to essentially use for their their plants. Oh, and is that um, like making a fertilizer, but like putting a tea bag in water and like letting that turn into a liquid fertilizer? Exactly. Exactly. Wow. So I've never heard of that. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. It's a great way to to maximize. So the benefit of the soil booster of worm castings is in the microbial life that is in that product. So there's there's hundreds of thousands of microbes, so bacteria and fungi primarily, that are in the worm's gut. And those get deposited onto the worm casting. And those are the same microbes that need to be in soil for plants to receive their nutrition. I often say that microbes are like the Uber Eats of the soil. (laughs) Uh, Microbes will actually go out much farther than a plant's roots could ever reach, and they will find the nutrients that the plant needs and bring it back. The plant will actually ask for certain nutrients based on what stage of growth it's at. The microbes go out, they find it, they manufacture it, they bring it back to the root system, and they deliver it to the plant. In exchange, the plant pulls carbon dioxide out of the air, turns it into glucose, uh, sugar, and about half of that sugar it produces gets transported to its root system and out into the soil. For a long time, scientists couldn't figure out why the plant was doing this. But what we know now, what we discovered only about 20 years ago, was that the plant is using that sugar to feed the microbes. It wants to encourage a really strong, diverse microbial population in the soil. It has a symbiotic relationship with microbes. So the problem these days is that a lot of soil is missing this microbial life, whether through neglect or uh, chemical fertilizers actually kill the microbes in the soil. So in this case, what our product does is it brings back all these microbes that have gone missing and the plant will then feed the microbes to grow the population. So you don't need a lot of the worm castings or the soil booster. You really only need about a handful per plant because from there, Mother Nature will, will have what she needs and will create a strong, healthy ecosystem to support that plant. And it'll spread out, right? Like if you put it in a dirt around your plant, I think it would, like you're saying, like migrate a little bit, like move around and pass nutrients around, or does it stay kind of put? Where you put for, it in. For sure. So the microbes are alive. They're moving around in the soil. They're, they're converting um, nutrients from one format to another. And certainly they're working together as well. And again, the science is very new on this. But what we're finding, for example, is that fungi, for example, they create vast networks, communication networks in the soil. Mm-hmm. And they actually talk to each other. And this is one of the ways that plants can help each other out if if one plant is affected with a a pest or a disease 
the fungal networks will inform the other plants around it so that the other plants can can have a head start building up defenses and hopefully fight off the, the disease. So there's so much going on in the soil that we really don't understand. So another example is, you know, it used to be common knowledge, accepted knowledge that you would want to dig your garden. So you're, you're, you know, trying to aerate your garden. You're trying to, you know, open up the, the space between the soil. What we know now is that actually hurts the soil. It hurts these microbes. It hurts these fungal connections. You do damage every time you, you dig in your soil. And so the less that you can dig is actually better. Okay, but how do you get rid of all the weeds if you don't <laughs> till, right? Well, this is a bit of a, of a perspective change. You know, yeah. what is a weed? Well, a weed is a plant that's growing somewhere we don't want it to be growing. The reality is, though, that soil should be covered with plants. There should be roots in the soil at all times. And the reason, it goes back to the microbes. So the microbes need the root systems to get their sugar. So in the fall, if you pull out all your plants and leave your soil bare, your microbes are going to starve and they're going to die. And they're not going to be there in the spring when you need them. So the same sort of applies to weeds that certainly you want to, you know, the the plants or the vegetables that you're growing, you want to give them some space and, and ensure that they have access in the soil to the nutrients they need. But weeds inherently are not bad. They're actually helping to feed the microbes in the soil. So it's a bit of a perspective change in terms of, you know, in terms of permaculture um, or other types of of natural growing, weeds aren't really considered bad things. They're, They're actually part of the system. So I think till farmers think that they're taking nutrients away from the tomatoes and the peas and stuff, right? I think that's the reason farmers typically want to get the weeds out? Is that true? Exactly. So so that's not, it, it, it's not quite as clear cut as that. Now, again, you do want to have some space around, let's say, your tomato plant. Um, you don't want it crowded out by other, other growth. But at the same time, if you just only have a, a field of tomatoes, we call that a monoculture. And unfortunately, those tomatoes are going to use up the one or two or three types of nutrients that they need and there'll be none of the other plants. The rest of the ecosystem won't be there to replenish the soil. So it is a balance. Mm-hmm. And one thing my dad said that when he was young, so he was born in 1951, and he went to a one-room schoolhouse in rural Canada, and oh, wow. he said that they were taught in school to leave those field borders in between your fields because they're so important for bringing in, you know, birds, butterflies, wasps, bugs, and I suppose they would be keeping the worm population good too. And then, of course, for hundreds of years, people in Canada here have tilled, right? They till, Mm -hmm. they spread manure, they grow crops, Mm -hmm. but they leave those borders so that there's natural areas, right? And what, what I see now, I was in BC for 13 years, I come back, and either the fields have houses built on them now, or cedars grown up in them, or the borders are all gone, so that farmers can buy bigger and bigger tractors and equipment. And then they have these massive open fields, and there is like nothing natural left, it seems. And I think that's when you get into the, you know, the bad chemicals, and then you're trying to 
it's almost like racing to the bottom. Like you're just trying to fix problems, fix problems. Whereas I guess if you leave natural spaces, it's going to be better, right? For sure, for sure. So one of the the biggest things that we're realizing is how important diversity is. And so diversity in your ecosystem is really what gives it resilience. And you're right, over the years, we've reduce those those fence lines that used to, you know, have a whole bunch of birds and, and bees and different plants that were growing in there. And, and we paved over a lot of our farmland and the, the crops that we do grow are often monoculture. So, so we don't have that resilience anymore. You know, one little pest can wipe out a whole field. Whereas if there had been those fence lines, if there had been some, some diversity in the planting, then it would have been better able to handle what it throws at it. And especially with climate change and and climate chaos, the reality is that the weather we're going to experience is going to become more and more challenging. We need to bring the diversity back to our agricultural system to help give us some of that resilience so that we can adapt as as we move forward in, in this new climate that we're in. I watched this show with, I can't remember if it was a Mennonite family or Amish family, but they were saying that the wasps will come and eat things like aphids and like little little pest bugs. And have you ever heard of anything about that with wasps? I know you're, the, you're a worm expert, but <laughs> going on a different path here. I can't speak specifically. You know, we know that with permaculture, with, with natural organic growing or, or biodynamic growing, that the use of beneficial insects is one of the the best tools for combating pest problems. So certainly, uh, we do some aquaponic growing oh, in really? our natural house. We need ladybugs to control the aphids. So it's definitely a, a much natural, better way because the alternative is using a pesticide, which is a chemical. And unfortunately, that chemical is broad spectrum. It kills everything, not just the pest. Yeah. Uh, and and that's what we want to avoid. And usually a petrochemical. And when we're trying to get away from oil and gas, it doesn't help to be using those. And then, yeah, I'm so afraid of, of people using those and then just killing all the butterflies or hummingbirds. You know, you just don't really know what else it's killing. So, yeah, I, I, I would never use those on my gardens. But did you say that you were doing aquaponics? So my partner has... Uh, Quite a quite a passion for aquaponics, so we have a system in our basement, and we're looking to build a bigger system in the future. Wow! So I have a friend who's really into this, and I think he started a little bit, and uh, I think it it seems very difficult to me. So that's with fish. You're using fish. That's right. So it's a closed loop system. The yeah. the, the fish grow uh, in a tank. The fish pee is then taken over to the grow bed, where it is used. Uh, their microbes will also be in that system. They'll feed the, the plant, and then the cycle continues. There's uh, some at Epcot Center. I know they use hydroponics, but then I think they use aquaponics too, but it's been a while since I've been there. I want to talk about the worms again because th- this is so cool. So how do you raise healthy worms? Like, is it basically just give them the half and half, like you were saying, like the half carbon stuff, right? Like paper and that, and then half food scraps, and then they're good to go. Is it difficult to raise worms? Do you have challenges? Well, you know, it, it depends what, what perspective you're coming from. You know, compared to most livestock, and, and our worms are our livestock, it, they're really easy. You know, unlike a horse that has to be, you know, fed twice a day and let out. And the worms, you know, really only need to be fed a couple times a week. Um, you do have to pay attention to a few key indicators. So 
certainly that mix of carbon nitrogen is really important, as well maintaining adequate moisture. So the worms do like it to be quite wet. Worms breed through their skin and they can't actually exchange oxygen unless they're wet. And so that's why if, if a worm dries out, it essentially dies. So moisture, temperature is another thing that we, we closely track. So our worms prefer it between about 15 to, to 20 degrees Celsius. They can survive below that. They can survive for a short period above that. But ideally for them to be eating as quickly as possible and reproducing as quickly as possible, you want to be around that 20 degrees Celsius mark. Mm -hmm. That reminds me, why do worms come out on the sidewalk and stuff when it rains? Is that because there's too much rain and they're drowning? Exactly. So worms can live underwater for about 48 hours. But when we get lots of rain and sustained rain, essentially they get flooded out of their homes. They, they have to come up for air, and that's when you'll see them out on the sidewalk, and they're, they're struggling because they can't go back in their hole, but they do need to, to stay wet to get that oxygen. So that's why they'll come out uh, after a heavy rain. Yeah, very cool. I think probably people wonder about that, or maybe everyone knew it. I don't know. <laughs> I guess deep down I knew it because I had the guess. <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting raising something kind of unconventional, but then it's so helpful for the world. Like you're doing things on, on different scales. So you're removing things from landfill. And the data is very important, like you said, because you can give companies their data of how good they're doing, right? Because I think okay. if people aren't reminded how good something is that they have to put effort into, then maybe it will become a chore. But if they're reminded, you know, maybe in the office newsletter every month about how awesome they are <laughs> and the contribution <laughs> that they're doing by saving the landfill and saving carbon. And are there certain offices who have yards or little gardens so that you can take their food scraps away, but then you also like give your product back to them? Yeah, for sure. And, and actually, that's a, a perfect point to make right now because you're you're touching on this issue of, you know, they call it the tragedy of the commons, this idea that, you know, as humans, we're very selfish. And if we have to take extra time or effort to do something that doesn't directly impact us um, or result in benefit for us, then it can be challenging to, to get people to do that. So one of the, the really key pieces of our business is that the offices receive a portion of the soil booster back once a year. They receive 20% of what's produced from their food waste. And this is really important because we want those office employees to really see what can be made out of the food waste. And we know from research that when someone is knows what's going to happen, for example, with your aluminum can, generally it's known these days that those can be recycled back into new aluminum and that you'll get a new can out of that. So what we're trying to show is that that food waste that you, you took an extra 30 seconds to walk from your desk over to the compost bin, put it in the right place, that by doing that, you're going to have the benefit of getting back some of this amazing soil booster that then you can either take home and use on your garden. Or as you said, some of our clients have facilities where they can plant a garden on site or use it for landscaping. Um, in a few weeks, we'll be going to the Scatting Court Community Garden at Dundas and Bathurst because one of our clients, CIBC, is donating their 
soil booster to the community garden. And so we'll be going with a group of employees and we'll be fertilizing their plants and helping them with some of the gardening activities. Mm. And this is about closing the loop. So we want people to make that connection that, that the, it's a circular process. There's no such thing as a, as a start or end. There's no such thing as waste. It's all just energy flows. And if we can keep it flowing in a cycle instead of a, a linear process, which is what most of our economy is built on right now, then we're going to be able to create a, a sustainable, in fact, we're going to be able to create a regenerative economy that will stop doing all the harm that we're doing right now. And in fact, we'll start doing benefit and we'll be returning our environmental systems to, to their prime rather than continuing to, to pull resources and to damage them. I was reading this ancient history book about the Amazon and how they're finding these like 5,000-year-old soils that were human-made with biochar. Mm -hmm. And they're like ancient and they've just kept going because of like what you're talking about, these microbes. And biochar apparently gives a good home, almost like a honeycomb or something. Yes for the good bacteria. And so, yeah, thousands and thousands of years and they're still there. And that's how they made the Amazon fertile because the soil typically is very weak there. So there was like human kind of interference thousands of years ago. And I love ancient history and the environment. So (laughs) I was like nerding out on this topic. Well, it's it's part of a larger fact, which is that there's a lot of ecological wisdom out there. And for the last couple hundred years, We've been ignoring that, but the reality is a lot of previous cultures had figured a lot of this stuff out. I mean, you know, the yeah. First Nations is a perfect example that they may not have understand the exact science behind what they were doing. So, for example, planting the Three Sisters. What's but, that? Oh, you're putting me on the spot here. But So the Three Sisters is the name of a group of plants that get planted together that First Nations people would traditionally plant together. I believe it's corn, beans, and squash. Oh. And the corn grows up. The beans um, use the corn as a trellis to grow up. Yeah. And then the squash grows out around the, the bottom. They work together. At, the microbes in the soil actually work together. It's sort of like a perfect pairing. And so you maintain your soil fertility by growing these three um, plants essentially side by side by side. So it's sort of an example of they may not have realized why that worked so well, but what we know now is that the individual microbes for each of those plants are actually working with each other as well. And so therefore you're not using up any one type of nutrient, but again, you're keeping that balance and that diversity so that year after year after year, you can continue planting in that same spot. Wow. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, there's a lot of ancient plant knowledge, and I won't get too far off topic, but ayahuasca is another one that these people in the Amazon as well, because I was just there visiting. And how how on earth would you know that like a vine and a leaf combined makes this like super powerful medicine, right? It, that just is crazy. Like, do people just try things and hope they don't die? And then if they do, other people don't <laughs> eat them? Like, it's so weird to think about how people did this without laboratories and, you know, <laughs> beakers and lab coats and all this stuff. So you have an event service too, is that right? We do, yes. So do you go to like pop-up events? Is that like showing your product and selling it? Or do you actually like bring a compost bin and like collect food waste from events? 
Yeah, so primarily it's a, a compost collection service for events or festivals or weddings. If the organizers are trying to be sustainable or if they're working towards zero waste, then we can provide the, the composting piece of the solution. And we have um, big bins that we use that are well marked and um, we will bring our staff on site to offer education. We'll work with the the vendors in advance to ensure that the uh, food packaging, for example, is all compostable. So it's really part of a, a zero waste solution for events that want to to really make sure that their impact uh, is as good as possible. Yeah, that's very cool because uh, I love community and events and local stuff. And a lot of the times when I go, it's just a little heartbreaking at all the garbage that's around and especially food waste, right? It's I think food waste is one of the easier things you can divert, especially if your city is collecting it or if you have some room in your yard to compost. And it's a huge part of my zero waste lifestyle. I would say probably, oh gosh, a really high percentage of my waste is just food waste. Um, it's like that and recycling really. So <laughs> it, it's very, it's very good. So events will pay you basically to take part and to divert the food waste and then you take it back and, and turn it into something viable, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Pretty much like a, any other um, provider, except in our case, we're um, able to give them back some of that uh, soil booster. Yeah. So you're using the data probably, right? Like saying, okay, you have this festival coming up. This festival in 2015 or whatever produced this much garbage and like this much carbon. And if you, you know, hire me, then we can reduce your carbon. We can reduce your garbage and you can be eco-friendly and all this stuff. Like, is that kind of how you, you do it? Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's often one of the selling points. It also helps the event in terms of its front-facing or public-facing image. So, you know, if it's an event that, that really wants to attract younger people who are always very keen to be keeping an eye out for this type of thing, you know, we know that millennials want to um, have the compost option. So, uh, so this is sort of a, the service that can allow an event or a festival to really put its best foot forward. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I know Live Nation, one of the biggest concerts put her honors. I don't know what you'd say, like not a promoter. I guess they're a promoter too, but like they, they put on the concerts, right? Uh, I know I saw recently that they're looking to uh, to reduce waste. Um, so whether that's bringing in recycling and, and composting and stuff. So I think we'll probably see more of that, which is really great. And finally, you have an eco home. <laughs> well, it, it is my partner's home, but uh, I'm very lucky that I get to get to live here. Yes. So is it a, is it a straw bale house? Was that it's a it's a straw bale house. It's up in uh, Hockley Valley, about an hour north of the city. You can actually look it up online. It's WilsonNaturalHome.com. It is available for Airbnb bookings, and uh, it's straw bale, so it's totally passive. So there's no furnace. Um, there's big windows, southerly facing windows, and so in the in the winter, the sun pours in, it heats up the the concrete floor, which holds on to that heat uh, through the night and releases it slowly. Uh, in the summer, there's uh, awnings over the windows to reduce uh, how much sun's coming in. And yeah, we've got the aquaponics in the basement. It's uh, we've got the uh, you know electric chargers in the uh, carport, and uh, and then we also do our farming here. So 
So we do uh, we we try and grow as much food as as we possibly can. How do you keep it warm in the winter time? Just the sun. <laughs> so so the sun is the primary way we do that. There is some in floor heating. So there are solar panels. There's both photovoltaic and the other kind, which I can't remember what it's called. Solar hot water, essentially. And the hot water will will get warmed up by the sun and then it will run through the floor to help provide additional heat. Oh, wow. But I mean, I, I will admit that it's not as warm in the winter as a, as a regular house. Um, mm-hmm. It's only about 16, 17 degrees. So it's the type of thing where you have to wear a sweater. And it's actually great because it reminds you that as a society, we've become very <laughs> accustomed to luxury and to everything being easy and at our fingertips. And, and I think this is one of the problems, one of the root causes of a lot of our environmental issues is that we're really spoiled <laughs> as, as, as humans, uh, you know, in Canada at, at this, this time. And so when we're in our, in our natural home that doesn't have a furnace, when we get a bit cooler, uh, especially if the sun hasn't come out for a couple of days, it can get, you know, 16, 15 degrees Celsius, um, we have to put a sweater on. That's the solution. It reminds us that we can't necessarily always have everything perfectly acclimatized to what we need, that when we're working with Mother Nature, um, there's there's give and take there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know a lot of people who keep their homes so warm in the wintertime are Canadian winters that they wear like shorts and t-shirts and bare feet in their house and I'm just like oh oh my gosh like just get a sweater and some slippers you know and then then some people keep their house at like 68 69 in the summer and summer for me is a time of not wearing as much clothing like I wear a summer dress or shorts right it's that time where you don't have to wear a sweater but people will pump up their air conditioning and then wear sweaters anyway and it's freezing cold in offices. Like if you have an office job, you probably know what I'm talking about. And uh, the I've mentioned this before on the show that our, our Ontario hydro usage spikes in the summer, which mm-hmm. is crazy because we're a northern nation. It should We should be using it to heat our homes to not like freeze to death, but we're actually using more of it to cool our homes for like the three months that we need it or two months. So yeah, mm-hmm. I, I'm a big fan of just grabbing a sweater or opening a window or uh, using using the sun. That's a big thing that people forget about too is curtains. Curtains make a huge difference. If you open them up, it'll warm up your home during the day. If you, you know, close them <laughs> to keep it cool, like um, that's how I grew up. My mom would go around and like open all the windows and open all the curtains because we never had air conditioning growing up. And if you did the rounds, right, of curtains and windows <laughs> and did them again, like at night and like you could adjust your temperature that way. So for sure. It makes a huge difference, uh, natural cooling. You know, that our house has a, a green roof, um, which, you know, it, it isn't available for everyone, but certainly it helps um, in in the summer. All that sun um, is absorbed by the plants that are up there and helps keep the house cooler than it otherwise would be. Oh, good. Cool. I don't think I've ever seen those in Ontario. I saw them in BC, but like, because it's grass, right? So you have solar panels on one side and grass on the other? Exactly, exactly. Nice. Cool. Awesome. Well, this has been really cool. So I just want to thank you for coming on the show and telling us all about this because I learned so much about soil and about worms, which is 
really cool. And I think your eco home is super awesome. So I hope so much that I can come and see it one day soon. And uh, if we ever go to YouTube videos, I definitely want to feature you on one of those because I think you have so much visually to offer to people and to inspire people. So I love it. So thank you. For sure. You know, the reason the house was built was to, to, and it was built about 20 years ago. So it was one of the the, the first ones in this area to, to be built like this and uh, was really done to inspire people, to show people what is possible, um, that, that we have the solutions, the technology that we need to be building houses and, and buildings in a more environmentally friendly uh, way. We just have to have that, that political will. And, and as individual homeowners, we have to prioritize some of those, uh, some of that technology. And uh, I should also mention, because I know you guys uh, broadcast in Prince Edward County, and we do have two retailers uh, in out that way that All sell right. the soil booster. So Lockyer's Nursery in Picton and the new Carson's Garden Market in Hillier, they are both uh, great supporters of the business, and they have the soil booster available for retail as well. So oh, many of your listeners live out that way. They should definitely go check it out. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's huge, huge growing area here. Awesome. Okay, cool. Well, thank you so much, Jocelyn. This has been absolutely wonderful. And uh, I'm really glad that you have this business. So thank you. Well, keep keep up the good work, Laura. You're, I was looking at your episodes and really interesting stuff. And uh, I think you're you're shedding light on businesses that might not otherwise get uh, get featured. So so thank you for, for your work. Oh, thanks. They're the businesses that are going to change the world. And they have very, very good things to say. And I, I love promoting it. So yeah. Cool. Will do. Awesome. Take care. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. That was Jocelyn Molyneux from Waste Not Farms near Toronto. If you like our show and want to help save the world from all this trash we're consuming, please consider donating to the Zero Waste Countdown. You can become a patron on Podbean. You can find me on Patreon. Or you can donate right on the website, zerowastecountdown.com. And if you're interested in seeing a photo of our guests, you can check us out on Instagram. That's zero underscore waste underscore countdown. And if you want to email me, it's laura at zerowastecountdown.com. Thank you for listening, everybody. Thanks to all our listeners in America, Canada, Australia, Germany, the UK, and wherever else you may be tuning in from. Together, we're going to change the world. Change starts now. This is the Zero Waste Countdown Podcast.